A very warm welcome to this World Game Changers podcast, where your host, Paul D. Lowe, embraces many crucial conversations that compassionately contribute towards creating a better life and world. Paul's intention is very simple, to help get people's inspirational insights and motivational messages out into the world so others may benefit. Hello, listeners, and welcome to this World Game Changers podcast episode. Today, I'm joined by, I don't know if returning guest is the right phrase, but uh, a lady that um, previously did a podcast and were around beliefs. And um, Lynn Smith, the name, so a very warm welcome to you, Mom. Thank you very much, Paul. Uh, happy to be back. And uh, what we thought, listeners, on uh, building on that beliefs episode, we talk around the six human needs and more specifically, how are you meeting your human needs? So um, I'm going to hand over to Lynn. She's going to be the question master extraordinaire. And I'm basically going to respond to uh, any questions that she may pose. So it's, uh, it's over to you, question master. <laughs> Thank you very much. And uh, it is the six human needs as uh, designed and delivered by Anthony Robbins, for those that are not aware of this particular strategy and um, design and I think it's fair to say isn't it that um, with these needs he proclaims that you know that we'll actually um, you know I can't remember the right phrase or word but um, go against our values and our morals to get our human needs met. Hmm. You've kind of stole my thunder. I wanted to save that real kind of knockout piece till the end. But anyway, the cat's out the bag now, listeners. Maybe we'll <laughs> stop the podcast episode and we'll all go and make a cup of tea. <laughs> but, um, yeah, okay. Um, yeah, I mean, that's very true. That's very true. And um, sometimes, you know, people question that. And I've actually used the example on more than one occasion where, Okay, would you, you know, there was a film, was it Indecent Proposal? Um, you know, I posed the, the question, would you sleep with somebody for a million pounds? And most times the answer is no. Okay, because that's part of your value system. What about if a loved one needed a life-changing operation? What would you do then? And it puts it in a different context. So the values are compromised to meet the need. You could say, listeners, that that's an extreme hypothetical example. Maybe it is. I understand how you would come to that conclusion. But I also understand from my own experience how values uh, they do. I do uphold Robin's statement of or assertion that we will compromise our values to meet our needs because needs, you know, it's something within us as a human. And um, yeah, so anyway, without giving too much more away, um, we'll go on a voyage of discovery, I think. Yeah, um, well, these needs are, are that we're going to be talking about what drives our behaviours. And so let's get into it and ask initially, what are those four core needs? And if you wouldn't mind running through what they are, please, Paul. First one is certainty, the need for certainty. And I always, when I say certainty, I always say brackets control. We want to control things. A 
because that by definition makes us certain it gives us that certainty the opposite opposite of that is uncertainty or, or variety the third one is the need for significance me myself and i knowing that i matter it's all about me and then the fourth one the opposite of that particular one is the need for love and connection where i think it's fair to say a lot of people and that's a very general statement settle for connection rather than love because it's deemed easier stroke less painful yeah so interesting isn't it and um so these you know four core initial needs that we need to get met all have to sort of be equally um met sort of like 25 percent each or is it context specific no it's, it's it's absolutely the latter i mean as we know life apart from mother nature's ruling and we're not privy to that it's a bit like trying to work out a, a social media or facebook or, or an algorithm forget it you ain't gonna do it and uh, the same thing applies to mother nature she's got her own beautiful algorithms that go off beneath the surface and man in his infinite wisdom thinks he's got that sorted. Well, he hasn't. And I mentioned that in the context, listeners, of life. You know, it's not an exact science. The exact science is way beyond us. Mother Nature's got the algorithm to that, but we don't need it. You know, why don't we just live life to the best we can be? So a bit of a long-winded answer there, but no, it's not an exact science in respect of, you know, four 25%. And it's all neat and tidy and it's all nicely balanced. Because isn't it true, listeners, that as humans, we're not all neat and tidy. You know, to quote a well-known cliche, we are perfect in our imperfections. Absolutely. So let, let's talk about these four initial core human needs then. Um, the, the need for certainty, and I suppose initially before we get into sort of giving some examples, I think it's important to um, to say that these these can be met in either positive or negative ways, can't they, these, these needs? Yet again, listeners, mine host has stole the thunder. I was going to save that right till the end. I think I might have to change the host here because all the, all the real nuggets <laughs> are coming out early doors, early doors. But it just shows you there's no kind of pre-framing or... Uh, pre-organisation going off between us here. It is literally in the moment. And that's a great uh, that's a great statement to be able to make in life, isn't it, when we're living in the moment. And I've gone off on that kind of defensive uh, rant and lost the thread of the question. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I, I just wanted to, for the benefit of the listeners, give examples of, um, you know, I suppose possibly from your own life or from, you know, case studies that you've seen through the many clients that you've served. Um, what could be an example of behaviours that are negative around uncertainty and uncertainty and what can be uh, behaviours that can uh, be perceived as positive or negative around um, variety or certainty for the benefit of the listener? So are we looking at the four core needs here or are we looking at all six? I think start off with the four core needs and then go on to the higher needs. Hmm. Because what I was going to do, what I was thinking about on, on the thread of your question there was to, you know, if we can bring in the, the other two and then give an example of something that was very 
prominent in my life for decades that met all six of those needs in a very disempowering way. And then how that could be very relatively easily flipped on its head to meet them in a very empowering way. Yeah, that's a great, a great uh, solution to giving the audience uh, a bit of an overview. So the, the two higher needs, then once we've got those four core needs in place and um, operating and serving us um, to whatever level and degree they are serving us at this moment in time, once we've got those sorted, um, we go on to then getting our two higher needs met. And what, what are they, Paul? They are growth, the need for growth, and the ultimate, the highest human need is the need for contribution. So in terms of an example then of how you got these needs met in either an empowering or disempowering way, um, explain you know, what, what you can relate in terms of your own past experience as to how you got your needs met. Mm, okay. And this kind of nicely builds on listeners on the, the power of beliefs, the beliefs episode that we did previously, you know, about being given an identity and a belief system at a very early age. And then, you know, nurturing that, watering that seed and, and making it become a self-fulfilling prophecy. Because I was told at a very early age that I had got an alcohol addiction. And of course, um, I followed that. I believed it to be true. And I, boy, did I play, you know, and the other thing was I'd got an addictive personality, whatever that label's supposed to mean. But I suppose putting the two together is if you drink two bottles, I'll drink three. If you drink 10, I'll drink 20. You know, my, my cat is blacker than your cat kind of syndrome. And so what that did for me was um, it fueled that self-fulfilling prophecy of I have got an addiction and I will do it with whistles and bells on and I will go to excess, even sabotaging the, the things that I valued in my life, like friends, family, relationships, jobs, homes. I would, you know, all the things I valued, I basically threw them out the window to meet my need. And of course, what I didn't know at the time was there are ways to meet, meet your needs in an empowering, but through alcohol, through my alcohol, um, and I use this term loosely, this label loosely, addiction, I, I you know, basically I, I lost everything, my, my consistently, not just once, but consistently. And I wrote about it in my, uh, in my book, Emerging from the Forest, and I call them my black and white years, because the black years were in the phases where I was on self-destruct, path which in the early days was six months because I had self-hatred from my upbringing I had certainly deservedness I mean limiting beliefs blimey um, all this kind of stuff this darkness um, and it was that darklessness that um, some of you will know that listen regularly that resulted in a in a suicide attempt at 13 and a half that's how bad things were so the alcohol addiction, so how did it meet my need for certainty? Because I was a binge drinker, that was my pattern of drinking, I had the certainty of knowing that every six months I would be on a mad bender. 
I would meet my need for certainty. I would control it. I would say when it was going to start, when it was going to finish. And this was all kind of really disciplined. I mean, it was kind of military level planning and discipline. It was like, a, you know, conducting my life as a, through a military operation. Everything was certain. Everything was controlled because I controlled it. And I had to control it because inside I was so weak and vulnerable and insecure that I had to, you know, to clamber back anything because all my dignity and everything had been stripped away from me. So I needed to control something. And by controlling the one thing I could, that, that gave me, you know, that gave me my life back. And I use that term loosely because actually it didn't because it was totally disempowering me. I was actually giving my control away. And even the one with the suicide attempt, that was based on giving my power away to a football club. And they lost two games at the end of March, uh, 74. That was it. Because I believed in them so much, I can remember that on the, um, the 21st and the 23rd of March, 74 respectively, where they lost, uh, my, my team lost to teams that both play in black and white. Um, hence, you know, the, the, the black years and the, the black and white curse and all these things I'd created as part of a story. I created this story in my mind and believed it to be true. And created an identity around that as a hard-drinking, hard-fighting Irishman. Well, <laughs> it was just a story. So that was my certainty because I was controlling the drink, actually, in a way that I wasn't controlling the drink. It was controlling me. The uncertainty that it gave throughout my drinking is I never knew quite what I was would do next from drink. I'd either burst out singing, thinking I was the next great tenor, Mario Lanza, Enrico Caruso, or I'd start a fight, uh, or I'd end up with a girl, or, or whatever. You know, life was very erratic and spontaneous. I was like a powder keg ready to go up at any moment in time, uh, which was when it was good, it was great. But when it was bad, mm, it was just like say it was, it was colourful. In my black and white years, it was colourful. And um, so that's that's kind of the first two. I'm going to pause for breath there. And, you know, when you think about the uncertainty and the variety, was that a, around, um, did, that, that, did that sort of affect any health issues or your, your uh, training regime during those times when it was uh, a disempowering phase? Yeah, it massively on a micro level, i.e. in the moment, you know, day in, day out when I was on the drink, when I was up, but I knew I'd be coming off it. You know, now as the same, the early days, that was almost kind of six months on, six months off. And as I got, as I was getting older, um, that reduced, because I suppose the body was having a sort of natural way of saying, stop this. You're not punishing me this way, because I used to punish my body as well when I used to train hard. And, um, you know, training hard physically is, is, is good and healthy within reason. Um, but mine was more of a, a self-punishment, uh, a lack of self-love and deservedness. So, yes. Yeah, so on a micro level, um, you know, I really was I was abusing I was abusing it. And um, that variety um, came in the form of the abstinence as well. 
you know, because I knew I'd be off it. So that gave me a variety, that gave me variety, stroke uncertainty in a way that the certainty of drink, because I wanted to drink all the time. I just wanted to die, just wanted to give up. But something inside me burned quite fierce and that didn't mm. happen for obvious reasons. Yeah, and I suppose when we get too much certainty, you know, that, that can lead to boredom, can't it? Yeah, I think whatever, when I look back, you know, yes, it can. Uh, but certainly in my own context, whatever I look back on my life from, you know, um, and I embrace it with warmth and love now, gratitude for all of it, the tears, the tantrums, you know, the, the heartache that I've caused myself and, you know, and those for others. Uh, um, you know, I look back on it with immense gratitude for the learning that's emerged from it. Um, but yeah, it's uh, whatever's happened in my own life. I don't think I, I could I could attribute many adjectives. Boredom ooh, had to be way, 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 way down the list. In fact, I don't think it would be on the list at all. There's one thing in my life or I've been with my life. I've never been bored. Yeah, well, I suppose, you know, relating it to probably, you know, many listeners listening in haven't got the same story as you, you know, uh, too much certainty in their life. They may be feeling bored, which is what then drives us to change things and, uh, you know, create some uncertainty or some variety in our lives uh, to offset that. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've had on more than one occasion um, conversations with uh with people, I won't genderize it, that have had affairs. And when kind of dig down um, as to why that may be, the, and I'm generalizing here, but the general answer has been, I love my, my partner, but I'm bored. He or she gives me security, gives me certainty, gives me a good life, but I get excitement out of an affair. Mm. which creates that uncertainty, that spot, what's going to happen next? So there's, there's that solid foundation of certainty. He or she's always going to be there, roof over the head, good living, blah, 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 versus I'm living dangerously now. And that, you know, that yeah. balance between certainty and uncertainty. I suppose if we're living dangerously too much, you know, and creating a lot of variety or uncertainty in our lives, then that can lead to overwhelm, can't it? It can, it very much it can. And that's, you know, that, I think when I look at my own context of the drink, the drink gave me that, you know, I'm going to use the word and I don't particularly like the word, but I think it's a strong word and it's appropriate and that control. Also, I thought it gave me that control back. I mean, power is a better word. Um, but this whole thing around the uncertainty, as you say, if you have too much of that, you know, when you're already feeling vulnerable and insecure, it's, it's a very, very dangerous game to play. Of course, there's a lot of chaos. Completely, completely. So going on to how, you know, that, that, that addictive phase in your life sort of fulfilled the need for significance and love, love and connection as the other two core needs, um, can you give the audience an example of how that fitted in? Yeah, I mean, the need for significance, I've already alluded to um, 
the fact that when you know when I was uh, drinking, making merry, wine, women, and songs, I've often called it, um, it made me significant because I stood out from the crowd. You know, either by singing or you know um, walking out the door with a girl or starting a fight or, or whatever it was, it gave me significance. But I was relying on something. I suppose that Dutch courage to give me that significance. I was relying on an external source, in this case, alcohol, to give me that, you know, that significance, which is, you know, don't look outside of yourself for the answer. And that that was what I was doing. And then the love and connection, it gave me the, you know, whether it was with a girl, um, you know, I won't say that that gave me love, um, although I've been extremely fortunate and I mean extremely fortunate in my life with the, the women folk that have been um, in my life, either as, um, you know, in the context of my mother and my grandmother or more romantically, my four long term partners and, you know, without love from them. So, you know. The drink gave me the love and connection because those women always stood by me, no matter what I did. And believe me, um, I've, you know, certainly in the earlier days, not so much in the latter days, but I tried, I, not as I knew this at the time, but when I look back, boy, did I push them to the wire because I, I thought I didn't deserve to be with these amazing, beautiful souls. And, um, you know, sabotage is, is a word that uh, comes to mind to try and push them away, certainly with my, uh, with my uh, ex-wife um, and the lady after, after her. You know, I did everything to break it and I was immensely fortunate. So that was the love, the connection I got from drinking buddies because my drinking buddies didn't expect anything of me. I was accepted. So long as I'd got the price of a drink, I was one of the boys. In fact, oftentimes, I didn't even need that. Although I've, I've always been able to sort of, you know, manifest money uh, legally, I might add, legally, um, <laughs> and, and, you know, pay my way at the bar. I've got kind of old school principles around that about standing your corner, and, you know, but that's just me. I'm not saying that's right or wrong. That's just me. So but when you're in that drinking fraternity, the boys expected very, very, very little, if anything, of me. Just tell us a story, Paul. Let's have another drink. Let's do, let's jump over the tables. Let's see how many tables we can jump over when we're drunk and all these crazy antics. So the two very contrasting examples there of meeting the need through uh, for love and connection through drink. Most certainly. And, um, you know, going back to the significance, most people want to distinguish themselves to feel different from others, but you know, um, in it, in its extreme form, this can lead to feeling disconnected from society altogether, can't it? If we look at you know people like Michael Jackson, for example. Yeah, definitely. You know, there's a, there's a word that, and I think the timing's right to introduce this word into everything we're talking about. It's called balance. Now, for me, when I heard that word balance, you know, and normality as a, as a younger man, God, that's boring. You know, the guys I used to work with, they used to bring sandwiches in, in a lunchbox, you know, to, to work. It's like, what are you bringing sandwiches for? Well, well my, my wife's packed them up. That's boring. Sandwiches. Why don't you just go to the shop and have something different today and tomorrow? And, you know, just the whole thought of that routine and that predictability. You know, I didn't get bored. As I've said, I've never suffered from boredom 
Um, I've suffered from many things, self-imposed, but not boredom. But I can remember looking back how that used to sound. God, so, so predictable and boring. I cast a judgment on it. But it's interesting mm -hmm. as life, you know, um, levels out a bit as you get older and wiser. How, you know, well, I certainly look at things in a more balanced way to, uh, yeah, would I take a lunchbox if I had a job? Um, yeah, probably. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. yeah, I don't know. Become less judgmental, the more aware we become, don't we? Yeah, absolutely. And going back to the love and connection, uh, you know, even um, that can be, you know, negatively exuded by the mere fact that some of us need to feel too much love and connection. And this can lead to codependence and a lack of self-esteem, can't it? Yeah, very much so. Very much so. Um, you know, in my drinking phases, you know, I knew I knew that I needed the boys um, because, as I say, there was that there was that acceptance. They didn't ask anything of me. You know, I didn't have to. Uh, I was going to say I didn't have to perform. Actually, I did. Um, but it was very kind. There was very low expectation of me, and it was comfortable um, in a way that actually life was very, very uncomfortable and painful because I was actually really hurting and feeling vulnerable and insecure, in, uh, insecure inside. But, you know, through that conditioning, big boys don't cry. I, I made a choice from an early age to be a leader. So I wouldn't show that vulnerability. I wouldn't show that insecurity. I masqueraded it. And drink became, to varying degrees, quite a good mask. Quite a mm. good mask. In my experience, I think men have been very good at hiding that, you know, because of their conditioning, the way they really feel on inside. You know, it's not what they exude externally. Um, yeah, interesting. Mm. Yeah. So going on to the higher needs, the um, the need for growth and contribution. Did you feel as though you was meeting those needs even in those dark years? Yeah, I did. Because what would happen? I was very, very aware that you know, in my drinking bouts, whether it was six months on, six months off, three months, and that three months then got down to kind of a month, and that month eventually got down to a week, and I got to the stage in the end. And this is decades later, by the way, where I could I could just about manage a few days and it would just wipe me out completely to the point where I knew that if I carried on, it would kill me. I, I knew that inside because of I knew the signs over the years. You know, um, my mind was starting to, um, you know, I was having nightmares with spiders ready to chop my head up in my, in my dreams, spiders with hatchets ready to chop me <laughs> up into pieces and I'd wake oh, up gosh. and screaming and you know and all that kind of thing especially because I did the worst thing possible when coming off any uh, I just cut it dead I just cut it dead so I got on a mad one for you know and then just that's it stops like flipping a switch there was no weaning off it which is the worst thing you could do the worst and I did it that way which was indicative of my all or nothing uh, mindset I think it's true to say that it's been nearly 12 years now that you've been dry and sober. Yes, it is. Yeah. Yeah. Not that I'm counting anymore, but it's interesting how certain dates and, you know, I do because of where I'm at with my present day life and, you know, uh, how certain dates do stick in your mind. And it was my first day of abstinence was the 7th of February, 2010. 
that that's you know now why is that against because it's got no meaning to me anymore it's got no emotion it's got no power over me it's got nothing but isn't it interesting listeners how i can still pull that date back you know and, and recite it as if as easily as i could recite my birthday and by the time this episode goes live it probably will have um exceeded 12 years actually won't it <laughs> yeah yeah yes it will yeah so, um, you know, and I don't count, I, you know, I, I kind of don't count the years. I just, you know, whatever's happened in my life, um, I just honestly, and I know it's almost become cliched, but I have just become so, so grateful of whatever this gift has been. And yes, there's times when I've done myself no favours at all through my lack of awareness and my stubbornness and my ignorance and my arrogance and but really I was just a little boy that was crying inside and I wanted mm. love and affection and I wanted to be heard and know that I mattered and I think really as a general statement we have to be careful of general statements listeners of course but as a general statement isn't that what we're all kind of looking for as a human being absolutely so going back to the high needs of growth and contribution then how, how are you meeting those needs in those dark decades well, it was actually, I use the, um, the term recoiled spring because when I was drinking, I knew that I'd be coming off it. And I knew that my way of, you know, um, of growing would be to enter a white phase. So just, you know, as the night, the night time's over, the daytime will emerge. And I'd enter into that lightness from that dark. I'd enter into lightness and I would do amazing things. So I'd build up a relationship. I'd build up a, a well-paid job again. Uh, I'd build everything up. Uh, I'd train really hard physically, which was very difficult in the first couple of weeks of, of doing that, you know, because I would literally go from one to the other overnight, you know, doing five mile road runs at six o'clock in the morning when you've come off the back of a six month or a three month bender is not a good thing to do because <laughs> I was being sick and I was just a wreck. But that was my my survival my coping mechanism i look back and think how on earth i'm still alive well i kind of know the answer to that and that's not something that i've done it's a gift of life that i've been given and that's why that life um is now my first value first of my five hours that i alluded to in the beliefs uh, conversation that we had so i was like a recoiled spring to answer your question i knew that i'd taken so much out of my my dark phase that it would be giving back and that growing, that yearning for, yeah, but I'm not going to stay on a park bench and I'm not going to stay behind. I'm going to build all that up again. In fact, I'm going to come back twice as hard and twice as fast. So wherever I finished, despite throwing it all away, I'm not only going to, uh, you know, use the, use the analogy of a football game. So maybe I was two nil up when, you know, or uh, sorry, two nil down in a dark phase. So not only would I draw back to become 2-2, I would go on and win the game, and then I'd go 4-2 up. And that's how I looked at and, and, you know, orchestrated my life. You know, if I was in a fight, I had a, a belief that I always had to go 1-0 down. In other words, I had to be hurt first. You had to, you know, draw blood from me, break my nose. You had to do something to me. Right, I'm 1-0 down now. Now I'll start fighting. And this, this whole mindset I'd created. So that was responsible for the growth, really, because I would come back twice as hard of everything I'd thrown away only 
actually, ironically, to throw it all away again, to come back twice as hard again. And so the dog chasing its tail continued and continued and continued. Yeah. And so, and what about the contribution? Were you able to contribute in those dark decades as well? Yes, I was because, you know, there again, that was kind of aligned with the, um, the um, you know, the growth. It, it was very closely aligned with the growth because I knew that when I was on that growth spur, I would give back to those less fortunate. And I did all kinds of stuff, even when I was on the drink, you know, despite me um, not being able to, you know, barely look after myself, I still had somehow that something in me, that love, that compassion, that fire to want to protect. And I use this term, and this was part of the rhetoric of the story I told myself many years, and I've been challenged on it in later years, as, as it coming across quite patronizing. But my story was, I am on this earth to fight for the underdog. You know, that was part of my story. And even on my dark years, when I, you know, I'd end up on park benches, in fields, in the gutter, I was still, inverted commas, fairly good at fighting for others. And raising money. And raising money, yeah. I raised a bob or two in my time, I think it's fair to say. You know, charities, yeah. local concerns. And so there was always something, you know, um, you know, to bring that word balance back into play, you know, taking the extreme dark and the extreme light, putting the two together, we kind of get a great medium balanced area. Now, it took me a few years and I never said I was quick in a race, by the way. Um, but I feel I've kind of got that middle ground now, that balance. Um, but the six human needs within that have been absolutely, you know, phenomenal in understanding how they they can and do change people's lives once we know the rules of the game. Yeah. So would you say, I mean, Anthony Robbins actually teaches that usually we're driven by usually our two top needs and that they can change over the years. So would you would you say your two top needs that were prevalent in your dark decades, let's say, uh, are different now to what your two top needs are currently in your life? I would say they're polarised. Nice and conveniently polarised because certainly, uh, no pun intended listeners, my, in those days, my, by a country mile, my need was for certainty. I needed control. I had to have control. Even with my drinking, I would have a routine. It was military-like, as I've said. I would go in the same pubs. I would drink the same amount on the same time scale. I'd sit in the same seat. I'd have the same conversations day after day after day after day with the same people. Everything was predictable. If I was late for the next pub by a minute, I'd give myself a hard time. So, yes, um, you know... My need in those days was absolutely number one by a mile, certainty and control. These days, it's right at the other end of the spectrum, contribution. Mm. Yeah. So what would have been your top two then in the darker years against what would now be your top two in your current life? Certainly, Certain, as I said, certainty. Yeah. And then the second one would be significance. I needed to know I mattered because I felt I was worthless. I was useless. 
because that's what I was told as a kid, as a young kid. I was told I'd never be loved. I was hopeless. I was pathetic. And, and a lot worse, hell of a lot worse. And then I was physically attacked to reinforce the message. Mm. So, you know, I, I've lived there again, you know, that sort of from that control, that certainty and significance, which is, you know, I think what we clamor generally when we when we're feeling vulnerable, we need to, you know, we need that self-assurance. And then certainly the latter two now is that constant need for, for learning and growth and, you know, talking to people and, and just listening to their stories, you know, the power of storytelling. What are they saying? But what are they really saying? You know, who am I? Well, more to the point is, who am I becoming? That's a better question. So would you say your, your current highest two needs that are being driven in your current life are the, for, for the uh, growth and contribution? Yeah, because the, the more I grow, the more I'm aware and the more I can contribute not only to myself, so I become a better version of myself and I'm constantly, you know, nudging forward or uh, working towards nudging forward on that. And um, yeah, the more I can get, the more I can give. And we leave the world a better place, which is, you know, my kind of overriding mantra, leave the world a better place than it was when you got here. Stephen Covey's ninth habit. Yeah. And isn't it true, you know, that a person that's driven by, you know, uh, say the need for variety or the need for significance, for example, needs a very different life to uh, somebody that's driven by the ice two needs that might be for certainty or and contribution for example yeah and absolutely it is and um you know i'll make this statement that once we're as i've already made it but i'll give it some context now listeners once we're aware of the rules of the game and believe me the six human needs are fantastic powerful rules to you know to live by to guide by once we're aware of that we can change things very quickly you know, as I change things from a disempowering approach to a very empowering one. So I packed the drink and I threw all the, I met my needs through charitable work, you know, and, and serving others. And that was, it's been beyond, beyond, uh, I don't know what the word is. Um, well, let's just say empowering. Yeah, absolutely. I can, I can absolutely vouch for that and see that. So um, it's interesting, I think, probably for the listeners to realise that you need, you, you, your needs that drive your behaviours can change over time and they, that we can reinforce again that, um, you know, they can, your needs can be met in empowering or disempowering ways and um, it's up to us to be more aware of what actually is driving our behaviours and is it in an empowering or disempowering way. Yeah, yeah. And it is as simple, and you know, I'll say it again, listeners, but it's as simple as getting to know these these six human needs. And I would implore anybody to research them to because they, they are they are life-changing in a way that I can't explain to you. Research them, embrace them, put them into practice, because they will change your life. Hundred percent. And it's something that both yourself and myself teach and and work with isn't it as one of the many tools yeah and as tools go this is arguably the most powerful one of all you know i cannot speak 
strongly enough around the the power of the six human needs and how they can transform and do transform lives i second that completely so anything else you want to add to this subject before we wrap up this episode paul um no other than um beware of people stealing your thunder um (laughs) (laughs) and or or even uh, more still be be aware of people stealing your thunder twice (laughs) <laughs> um, and on that humorous note I've not really got much else to add <laughs> oh my apologies for that obviously then you can tell listeners that this episode was totally unscripted and off the cuff because <laughs> I was able to steal Paul's thunder so apologies for that one yeah as the as the old saying goes no apologies needed so uh, well many thanks for um, I was going to say hosting this uh, this episode well you have hosted it really you you've asked the questions so many thanks for that and um all that remains now listeners is to sign off by you know on a mode of certainty for us a mode of certainty because you've heard me say this so many times so let's meet the first human need by saying remember the world's changing how will you respond thanks very much for listening to this world game changers podcast episode Hopefully you found it interesting and helpful. Drop a line to paul at worldgamechangers.org with any thoughts or questions you may have, and he'll be more than happy to respond. Remember, the world is changing. How will you respond?